Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, of man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You hear those words, and I've got two questions that I want to ask you about. The first question is, who is that talking about? Jesus, right? Now the second question, don't say this one out loud. Is this what we just read from the Old Testament or from the New Testament? Okay, what do you think? Old Testament, right? But when you hear it, it sounds like it was written after Jesus had died and risen again. If you thought in your heart or maybe even said out loud, New Testament, and all of a sudden you heard somebody down the road say Old Testament, it's all right. You're not alone. A lot of people have thought that. In fact, a lot of people have wondered, who is this talking about? This same passage was the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when he was on his chariot. He was approached by a guy named Philip. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, the Ethiopian said, who is this this written about? Who is this person? And Philip started there and began to preach to him Jesus. What did Philip believe about this passage? This is Jesus. Now, this was written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ. I want you to take a moment to let that soak in. Whether you said Old Testament or whether you said New Testament, I want you to take a minute to let that soak in. What does that mean? 
That means that this chapter was supernaturally written by God through the prophet Isaiah. It wasn't just the writings of a person. It's the writing of God written because he wanted us to know when Jesus showed up on the scene, we wouldn't miss it. But Isaiah here is a little bit conflicted. He's a little troubled. We're reading Isaiah 53, so I would encourage you to turn there if you didn't know that's where we were going already. There was a reason why I didn't put the reference on the, on the screen. I wanted you to think about it. I want you to understand this is a supernaturally written chapter. And to be honest, the whole Bible is supernaturally written. Yet in our day, there are many who are thinking, oh, this is just the writings of people. This is the writings of people as they, and, and writing their thoughts about God. But your heart, your own heart testifies when you read this chapter, this is about Jesus and this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And so what does that tell you? Your own heart is testifying to the word of God that Jesus is the one. He is the Messiah that all Israel was looking for. And you may not be at the point this morning as someone who says, well, I believe in Jesus. That's why Isaiah starts this chapter like he does. He says, ask a question, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God has revealed himself. Who's believed? Isaiah's really struggling with this, to be honest with you, because he was given a task to preach a message to people who would not listen to him. In fact, we see that in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have um, Isaiah showing up or having this vision of the Lord seated on his throne and the cherubim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And, there are, and, there are, and, and he falls on his face. And after a coal is put on his mouth because he says, I'm, I'm undone, I'm a sinful man, I'm a, I live among a sinful people. God says, I need someone to be my voice. And he says, here I am, send me. He says, here's what you want to say to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. And you're going, oh, wow, they're not going to listen to him. So he's preaching to an audience that's not listening. And he says, how long am I supposed to do this? I'm sure that question kind of comes like, really? How long? Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses with peop without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. The Babylonians are going to come. He finds out later. You find out that in chapter 39 as we looked at before and he says, that's how long you preach. Wow, until everything's just destruction? Yes. But now he's writing post-exile. Now, he's actually looking forward. I think it's the same Isaiah writing, and he's looking forward to what's going to happen. He's going, wait a minute. Now, after the exile, people are supposed to be listening, right? So, who has believed what he has heard from us? I mean, he's, he's concerned about that, and I tell you, your heart can testify to you about this chapter being about Jesus, written 700 years ago, or before uh, 2,700 years ago, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and yet you not believe. 
that you don't take that step of belief and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's easy to take that step, even as a believer. And there are people who uh, hold to, to Christianity, say that they're Christians, and yet they're changing the theological landscape as we speak. They're trying to move the Christian movement in a different direction. One where there is no sin, there is no hell, where there is no uh, uh, sacrifice needed for sin, that we're born with original goodness rather than original sin. The Word of God is just a book that people have written about God, but not supernaturally written. And so as I was reading this passage, I was thinking, my own heart testifies. Your own heart just testified this morning to you. This is about Jesus, written 700 years before, so supernaturally written, the Word of God. And Isaiah believed in the Word of God. A couple of chapters later in 55, 11, he says, So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, and it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We've been, I've been reading the Bible recap and, and reading the, 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 the whole Bible this year with my wife. And, and, and after Joshua, Joshua said, not one good word of God failed. It all came to pass. When we begin to see God's word being fulfilled and we see it coming to pass, when we see a chapter like this where our own heart testifies, this is God's word, this chapter for sure. And then you begin to see what's the theology behind this chapter. You begin to be blown away by our God. The New Testament writers all believed that this was written about Jesus. We just saw Luke in Luke uh, 8 where the Ethiopian eunuch believed because Philip said this is about Jesus. We see the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 when he's talking about uh, this passage, because he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. If you back up just a little bit in chapter 52, you see that in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And then he asks the question, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? He's, he's, Paul is looking at this passage. He's clearly looking at this passage, and he, what does he say? He talks about believing on Jesus, that, that that's something, that, a step that we need to take. How can we hear without a preacher? And, and, and he tells us that we need to uh, believe on what we have heard, to confess with our hearts the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that he raised him from the dead. And he says, this passage is talking about Jesus. We see that in Peter, that the apostle Peter also is, is, refers to this as uh, referring to, uh, uh, to Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And you'll find that later in the passage. But then he says, by his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep. Recognize those phrases? They're out of verses 5 and 6. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter believed that this chapter, this very chapter was talking about Jesus. Paul believed that this very chapter was talking about Jesus. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke quote the, the part where uh, he's like a, uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted in verse 7, yet opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. They quote that Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke, we already saw, believed that this passage refers to Jesus through Philip as he talks about it, as he writes about it in Acts. The New Testament writers all look to this passage as referring to Jesus. Their heart also testified to them. This is about Jesus and him crucified. And you, and you realize that this is one of four songs. There are other songs that come before. In fact, a lot of Jews will look at this passage. And in fact, up until 1150, they all believed it was talking about the Messiah. But so many uh, Jewish people were, would look at this chapter and go, oh, that's talking about Jesus. And they were like, okay, let's, let's go a different direction. Because they would say, okay, well, this is not talking about Jesus. It's, it's, it's Israel. Israel is the, the servant of God. And they, they might go to uh, a chapter, uh, there's four songs here, and if they go back to, to the uh, second one in chapter 49, it says, and he said to me, 49.3, in his 10th sermon, he said to him, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And you go, oh, wow, that, that says Israel is the servant. Wait for it. Because if you read along a little bit further, context is always so crucial. In verse 5 it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob back to him, that's the other name for Israel, and if you missed it, and that Israel might be gathered to him. And you realize the servant is supposed to bring Israel back, so who is this servant? It's the perfect Israel, the ideal Israel. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's the picture that he gives. And so you see that this is talking about an individual in Isaiah 53 in this fourth song. And in this fourth song, after he asks the question, we begin to see the life of Jesus played out in the whole chapter. In, in verse 2, it's the life of Jesus. In verses 3 and 4, the rejection of Jesus. In verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, the death of Jesus. 9, the burial. And then 10 through 12, his resurrection and exaltation. The whole, his whole life is here in this chapter. The first one, the life of Jesus in verse 2, it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no former majesty. And, and you, you look at this, he grew up. We see in Luke chapter 2 where it says, He grew in wisdom and knowledge. And you think, grew up? Who is this Jesus? Because after all, if this Jesus was the one who died for us, I can't die for you. You can't die for me. If Jesus was just human, he couldn't die for us either. So he had to be more than. And that's something that Isaiah, as, he, as, he, as you see further, even in this chapter, he's, Jesus is more than just a person. He grew up before him like a young plant. So he, did, he, did, he was a child. We see Isaiah talking about that in Isaiah 7. He was born of a virgin. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And so this idea that this son of the line of David, and that same idea here is like a root out of the dry ground. Dry ground doesn't usually produce plants. If you were to go into a desert and you were to see a, a, a head of lettuce there on the ground growing, you would go, oh, wow. You know? It must be pretty miraculous to have this thing growing or it has some sort of source that I don't know about. 
And you realize that's what he's saying here, root out of the dry ground, the dry ground being, being the line of David that had dried up and yet not completely. There was a root left. And Jesus came of the line of David. And that's why this next phrase is so important. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. This idea of majesty is the idea of royalty. And you think about Jesus, if he is fully God and fully man, that he put aside his majesty, he put aside his royalty, he put aside his deity, he didn't use it. It didn't mean he didn't have it. He couldn't get rid of himself he, as God. He couldn't get rid of being God. But he didn't use himself voluntarily, his deity. And we think, wow, that must have been pretty hard to do. I mean, we've seen that in our news today. Harry and Meghan, right? Meghan Markle and Harry, uh, Prince Harry, that they uh, decided not to be royalty and they, they laid aside all the trappings of royalty and they had reasons for that, right? Well, Jesus had reasons for laying aside royalty and his reason was you and me. His reason was the world. His reason was Israel had failed at being a light to the world. And so he was going to be that light that uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 49, when it talks about the servant, it says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations. And we know that's exactly what Jesus was and is, a light for the nations. And he laid aside his majesty and no beauty that we should desire him. It wasn't because he was this attractive guy that everybody was drawn to him, this attractive young rabbi, right? No, he just was a normal-looking guy. That that wasn't the attraction. And he was rejected. That's what we see in verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by, man, uh, by men. And, and this idea of rejection, Jesus knew he was going to be rejected. He even said at the Last Supper, I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to be crucified. Even Peter goes, no, no it's not going to happen to you. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, he knew this is what's going to happen. God's word is going to come true. A man of sorrows. Some would look at this and say he was sorrowful. He was somebody who had great sorrow. And he did have deep sorrow. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I don't think what, that's what this phrase is talking about. I think it's a, a man who helped others with their sorrows, much like a, a man of medicine or a, a woman of medicine, that there's somebody who helps somebody with their sickness. A man of sorrows is someone who helped people with their sorrows and acquainted with their grief says, and as one from whom men hide their faces. They don't believe. They walk away. In fact, we see the disciples in John 6, 66, probably a good number for the reference, right? <laughs> it says people began to walk away from him on that day. So much so that he even asked the disciples, are you going to leave me too? And they eventually did for a time. When he was arrested, they ran, they hid, they weren't around. He was rejected by the nation. He comes in on a donkey on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, and, and, and they're throwing palm leaves and Hosanna to him who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were excited about him. And then that same week they crucified him. They rejected him. He was despised and esteemed not. 
And then it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And if like we say, well, something must be wrong with him. God doesn't even like him. You know, that is that idea that God brought this on him. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You know, as I thought about this passage, I realized that in our day, in our generation, there's a group of people that have moved away from, from original sin. They've moved away from the Bible being the word of God. They've moved away from uh, uh, even Jesus being this sacrifice. They struggle with some things. In fact, there was a, a uh, Christian artist, uh, the Gungers. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but uh, Michael Gunger became a part of this movement and he moved away from God. And he said this because he, he, he didn't want to give up Christ and so he, he's moved away from Christ being the Savior. And in fact, uh, he said, uh, uh, I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include the father murdering a son in that endeavor because that's how he views the death of Christ. And that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful, it's horrific. And so he's moved away. And so he says, we're not sinful, we're originally good. And you could see why, if you word it that way, why that would be disturbing. What you need to realize is, is that God didn't do this to Jesus. The Father didn't do this to the Son. The Son willfully, willingly gave himself up. He said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The resurrection occurred because he laid down his life and he had the power to raise it up. Who would have the power to lay down his life? Only God. Only God the Son. And so Michael Gunger, in his statement, leaves that out. Doesn't acknowledge that Jesus was a voluntary person. It wasn't something that he was powerless over. Another thing that Gunger misses is this passage, which our hearts testify is a supernatural passage, and this passage talks about sin. Verse 5, our transgressions and iniquities. In verse 6, iniquity. In verse 8, transgression. In verse 10, guilt. In verse 11, iniquities. In verse 12, transgressors, he bore the sin of many. Supernaturally, God saying, all have sinned. In fact, we see that in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And that's another phrase, our own way. In fact, I have a chart there. If you would go ahead and throw that chart up. I've been going through the passage, but... You realize all these times, and, the, and each time I put a verse, that's how many times that's used in the passage. These are the ways that God describes us. We're sheep that has gone astray. We've gone our own way. This is the more subtle form of it. In fact, I see it in, in a commercial uh, just yesterday, I, and I can't remember which car company it was, but in this car commercial, it said the statement was, this is you. This is you. And at the very last scene, the woman who's driving the car, he says, this is you. And she goes, yes, it is. 
And I go, wow, going our own way. We know about going our own way in our culture. We know about, and so if we believe what God is saying about us versus what culture says, culture says original goodness. Well, yeah, with Adam and Eve, but then they failed, and so have we ever since. And God in his word is saying, we're sinful people, all of us. And justice needs to be done. We're in a culture and a society that really wants justice to be done. And you see that uh, all over today, right? This idea that justice needs to be done. And we want it to be done for all these different people. And so then we have law suits and all sorts of stuff going on. And people are clamoring, clamoring for justice. So in our hearts, we believe in justice and we believe that a punishment should be coming. But then when it comes to ourselves, we're going, oh, except for me, right? I'm not that bad. And yet, we need someone to bear our sins. That's what this passage is saying. It is that bad. You may think you're not that bad. But we all are sinful. We all have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We've all left God behind. We've all refused to believe at some point. We've all been angry at God at some point. We've all have reason for judgment to come. And God, who cares about justice deeply, is the one who pronounces upon us as sinful, straying sheep, the death penalty. And we go, oh, the death penalty for, for the little things that I do? Yes. They're not that little. Not in a heavenly realm. Not in a heavenly courtroom. And then the judge takes off his robes and he steps down to the other side of the bench and said, now, I will take that judgment for myself and Jesus died for us. God loves justice. He cares deeply about it. He talks a lot about it in his word. And even though he had to pronounce it because of our straying like sheep, he also bore our griefs. Verse 4, carried our sorrows, was pierced for our transgressions, pierced in several ways by nails, by a spear with a crown of thorns, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastening, and by his wounds we are healed. Uh, healed. This idea of this substitutionary atonement, he took our place, is all through this passage. Laid on him, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Uh, verse 10, an offering for guilt. In verse 11, and bear their iniquities. In verse 12, bore the sin. He's the one who is our substitute. So many words about this idea of this substitutionary atonement for our sins that he took our place, that he was the one that walked around and he took the punishment that we deserved. It's written all over the pages of a, of a chapter that our very hearts testify is from God. And he died. It says in verse 8 that he was cut off out of the land of the living. In verse 9, and they made a grave with the wicked and the rich man in his death. In verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death. Jesus knew that after, as he was growing up, that he would be rejected. 
and that he would be bearing our sins and that he would die. He would be cut off. The interesting thing is in verse 9, it said he made a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now, at first reading, we kind of go, okay, yeah, that happened to Jesus. We, we get it. And Joseph of Arimathea came, asked for the body, all that, right? Think about this for a minute. When a person was di- died as a criminal, they didn't get the privilege of having a normal burial. In our world, uh, a person has the death penalty, goes through death row, they die, then the body's turned over to the family and the family does this burial. That's not the way it was done in Isaiah's day or in Jesus' day. If you were a criminal, you were buried in a common grave with other criminals. So the, even the statement of this by Isaiah would have people go, oh, wait a minute, wait, 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 this, this is not the way things are done here. We don't do it that way. They would have noticed And in Jesus' day, they would have noticed too. So for the fact that this happened exactly this way is powerful. His grave with the wicked, but with a rich man in his death was exactly what happened. Though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Peter's uh, quote from there. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. When his soul made an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. And you're going to go, wait, 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 wait. You just talked about cut off grave death, right? What is this prolonged days deal? It's the resurrection. Who are his offspring? Because he wasn't married. Spiritual offspring. Every one of us in this room who believe. Everyone at home who believes. Everyone in this world who believes in Jesus are his offspring. And he sees and saw us. And in fact, it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Because he affected our sin. He took care of it. And what did that do for us in the meantime? When we believe, notice what it says, by his knowledge, by knowing Jesus, is what he says, by his knowledge. By knowing Jesus, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. We're not righteous, but accounted as righteous, declared righteous by the God of the universe. We who are the sheep gone astray. And you kind of go, wow, what an incredible message this is. It's the gospel that was preached by all the New Testament writers. That Jesus died for the world. For a lost world, a straying world, going its own way. And he wants us to believe. That's why he started. Who has believed this message? That's why Paul brings it up in Romans. Who has believed? And those who have believed said, I believe. Caitlin Raychek said, I believe, right? Just this morning, I believe. Where are you? Have you taken that step of belief? I mean, because your heart You look at it and you think this testifies that this is the word of God and that this is about Jesus. You know, there's a commercial on TV. Uh, 
guy named uh, Tracy Morgan is the kind of the main character of it. He's from 30 Rock fame and SNL. And the, it's a rocket mortgage commercial. And it's the commercial where he says, well, pretty sure. And he goes, pretty sure? Is pretty sure good enough? It's not good enough. And then he says, I'm pretty sure that this is not a poison mushroom. Here, eat this. You know, and the guy falls over dead, right? And he says, I'm pretty sure these are parachutes. And it has a, you know, a little kitty cat on one of them. And she pulls a sandwich out of it and kind of goes like this. You know, and he's pushing them out of the plane, you know, with a little backpack. I'm pretty sure these hornets aren't the murdering type. You know, and he's got the veil on. And everybody else is running for their life, right? And the guy responds, let's go with certain. He says, good choice. I went with certain. Certain is Jesus Christ dying for my sins. Certain is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Certain is that everyone who believes on him will be saved. That's certain. I, in 1972, realized I needed to take this step. There were things that I, questions that I had that for three weeks I began to ask people questions and they began to turn me to the scriptures and as I scoured the scriptures for myself for the very first time, I began to realize this Jesus is someone who all the biblical writers testify is God, is our Savior, took our place, and I needed to believe. And in 1972, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to do the same. Caitlin's testimony is asking you to do the same. If you have already put your faith in Jesus, then the step for you is to walk by faith. It's the same thing. You believe. You trust. You exercise faith in Jesus. Well, exercise it every day when you wake up. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that Jesus died for us. We thank you that you cared that much. You cared that much about justice that you declared a just verdict. You care that much about love that you took it on yourself, that very same judgment for us. And Lord, our hearts, as we read chapter 53 of Isaiah, testify that that, that Jesus, whom Isaiah talks about, this Messiah who was to come, who has come, is the Savior of the world. And he rose from the grave, and he's alive. We serve a risen Savior. Lord, I pray for those who may be seated here today and haven't taken that step. I pray that they'd take that step of faith. That they would talk to you and just tell you that they believe on Jesus. They believe this old prophet from Isaiah from 700 years ago is right. Lord, we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.